yo, 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 hey, 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 we are back with another episode of Dialogue Heavy and with yours truly, Michael Anthony McMillan. Good morning, good evening, good night, wherever you are. Thank you for listening to your boy. So, as you know, we got to be intentional and deliberate with everything that we want in this life. So I will tell you two things. One, that I come on here and I uh, want to express myself, express my stories through my art. And I want to share it with my friends, fans, and, uh, and loved ones. And then secondly, you know, hopefully garner the attention of people that can help me share my stories with the world. We're going to do that. Believe me. Believe you me. So, we are continuing and actually ending today. Yep. With Hindsight, our story of Bernard Jenkins, a gentleman who, um, you know, had a dream one night that he was going to die in a year's time. And that prompted him to wake up and do something with his life because, you know, he hadn't done very much in his life. It's crazy how life can do that to you. So what actually happened that day, It what another thing that catapulted the catalyst of the story is that um, he was getting fired that day unbeknownst to him after that dream he was getting fired that day and he was gonna basically have two weeks and he didn't have he didn't have no savings or anything like that so he he uh, devised a plan where he would rob the people who paid him essentially paid him the money to do his job and in the last couple of chapters chapter i believe 11 and 12 were the last two chapters um we already know that he robbed the place now with with the robbery being over uh, he had to figure out how to basically get away with it. He put himself, he locked himself up in uh, Buffalo, New York, uh, far away, but still in the same state of all the people that were going to be chasing him. And um, he essentially uh, decided to leave after he, he wanted to go and talk to these guys and see if he can make a deal. But when he realized that they were just going to try to kill him anyway, he escaped he left and he went down to cuba he visited federico saw how great federico was doing with his wife hung out with him for quite a while and stuff and um then he wanted to but he just started having such a bad feeling in his heart and in his stomach and um he he so he called laratia just to check up on her time had passed she had had her money and stuff like that and he couldn't get a hold of her and um she eventually got a hold of him one day, or, or, or yeah, he called, she called, he called, Bernard called her mother and told her where she was at, that she had been touring, she hadn't been home in a while. And uh, th that put him at ease for a little bit. And then one day she called him and unbeknownst to him, she was already caught by the mafia. They had had her and it was gonna, they basically said, come back or she's dead. Worse on top of that, not only had they had had they got Laratia, which was already bad enough that they got the love of his life, one of the loves of his life, Zania, his niece. Um, and um, so then he was just going to have to go back. And uh, so um, he went back. He, he fought with Federico. Federico said, fuck off. I'm not going back. I'm living my life. Them two had their little fight back and forth. And then um, he went back on his own. When he got back, he went to the Grand Hotel and um, locked himself up, got himself comfortable to get ready for the meeting and stuff like that, ordered some um, some room service. And when he got the room service, ate and everything, and then started filling the spins and all that other stuff. And it just so turns out that um, 
all of this stuff was set up by the mafia and he was caught by them too and that's where we ended in chapter 12. so we're just going to continue with this today today will be the last session of hindsight and um i really appreciate you for hanging on all the way to it and hanging on during my little hiatus over the holiday season and i just appreciate and love all you guys for everything um you've done all the messages and all the um the support to continue on with the podcast and continue on with my stories because as you know it's really really hard to write stories i like to put myself under pressure so i can accomplish those things and use those as my little cookie jar later on in life and i have great friends that help me uh continue to do this thing so Without further ado, I bring to you Hindsight, chapters 13 and 14, and the ending of Hindsight. As you know, everything on this podcast, the Dialogue Heavy podcast, is recorded and recited and written by Michael Anthony McMillan, and we're just going to continue on. So here we go. Hindsight, chapter 13. When I awoke up, not only did I not feel sick, I felt great. I was in my own bed, in my own house, next to my own woman. The warm blankets that we were under kept at bay the coldness of the morning, and the sunrise that came through the window made everything perfect. With her back to me, I just stared at the God-crafted excellence for a while before I kissed every inch of her. Her skin, soft and supple, her ass, hefty and fat, every curve led to a new, better part of her that I just wanted to explore. My only goal at that moment was to please and nothing was going to stop me from accomplishing it. The vision and feeling of the sex was so surreal, like the way of the like the way her her brow furrowed, the way she bit her bottom lip, and the way she looked at me in lust and intensity when she came, and I could never forget it. After the triathlon level love session, the cold air was welcomed as I smoked a cigarette next to the window. Then I took refuge back in the bed, stepping over the matted mess of blankets on the floor. She laid in the nook of my armpit, speaking of the day to come while thudding footsteps of our little ones made their presence known. I was in absolute paradise and nothing was gonna ruin it. Thank you, Talia said. For what? I asked. For being you my beautiful, loving, caring husband. Well, you're welcome, I said. Thank you for forgiving me and Lenny for what we've done to you. Well, I told her, I'd be stupid not to. Look at what we have now. Yeah, it is nice. I love you, she told me. I love you too, baby, I told her. Talia gave me a kiss, and when we stared into each other's eyes, slowly, the happiness of her face changed to one I didn't like. She took a long labored breath and all of a sudden I got really scared. Something inside of me knew what was gonna happen next. We both did and anxiety came over me. Don't, I said. Bernard, just lay here with me, I told her. We can't. Well, why? You know why. You don't know that, I said. You always pull this shit at this exact time. And why do you think that is, Bernard? Talia got out of the bed and grabbed the glass of water that was sitting on her bedside table. Can I see the kids first? I told her. No, she said. Well, why not? Because they don't exist, Bernard. Fuck, I said. Don't make this harder than it needs to be, Bernard. Accept your fate. Oh, fuck fate, I told her. Don't say that. You don't know what it'll bring. Really? 
all, f all really i told her all fate brought me was a shitty brother a cheating girlfriend a dead-end job and a certain death by some mobsters when i finally tried to do something about my fucking life talia shook her head and didn't smile is that all you grasp from your life yes then that's sad benny you know something else i don't i can only tell you that you did some good bernard and that if you let fate do its thing, everything will be okay. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? I asked her. Talia smirked in a way I used to love, but at that point, I wasn't appreciating it. You ready? Talia said. Fuck you smiling about, I pouted. Are you ready? No, I'm not fucking ready. All right, I don't want to go back. You know how this works, Bernard. Yeah, yeah, you can't do it unless I accept it. But if I don't, everything turns to shit, right? Right. So stop it and go. All right, I said pissed. Yes, I... But before I could finish the statement, Talia threw the water in my face. And when I woke up, it was fat-ass Tony in front of me with an empty glass in a cold, dark room I'd never seen before. Wake up, sunshine. Fuck, I thought. I went from paradise with the most beautiful woman I had ever seen to hell with the, fat, the fattest motherfucker I had never wanted the pleasure to meet. It was like straight out of Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. And I was the cop. I was drenched, luckily not in gasoline, tied up in a metal chair in the middle of some kind of warehouse. The huge hooks sliding on sliding racks used to sling, used to hang sides of beef led me to believe I was in a meat locker. Then the freezing temperature, rank smell, and watery blood concoction on the floor made me sure of it. When the water cleared from my eyes, all I can see was Fat Tony, all 400 plus pounds of him, in the padded in mob uniform of black pants and a trench coat, and uniform to his fat ass was his patented chicken parmesan sand, in which he was wearing some of it on his shirt, the fucking slob. The place had no windows, but felt underground because of the metal port doors from the shipping trucks, and if all that was true, that meant it was one of Mr. Calhoun's establishments. I can't believe you thought the Grand Hotel would save you. You don't know you don't know we're everywhere, Fat Tony said. I can believe you're everywhere, you fat fuck. Oh really? Fat Tony yelled at me with his hands raised, his with his hands raised to give me a crack. Tony, someone spoke from the dark end of the room. Fat Tony looked in the direction of the voice, and I followed his gaze until into view walked an older gentleman. He didn't move fast. Neither did he move slow, but something about him commanded respect. He was short in stature and wide, but not fat. His gray hair combed backward. His gray hair was combed backward per perfectly with his glasses that hung on the edge of his nose. Everything on him was neat and tailored, simple but forgettable. And if you passed by him in the street, you wouldn't have looked at him twice, which I had the feeling was what he wanted. Real mafiosos don't want the limelight but neither do cockroaches. Bernard, sir, how are you? Now, chill ran down my spine when he spoke to me. A fear I'd never, a fear I'd never even felt when I saw the black eyes of Dino on payday. Something about his demeanor didn't sit well with me. Fine, I said. Really? Well, <laughs> you're a tougher man than I am. Oh, well, you're tougher than me, I give you that, he said. He's giving me compliments now, I thought. Bad, really bad. Well, you know, I'd be a little rattled if I was in your place, I guess, the old man said. 
Why is that? I told him. Well, you stole a lot of money from every from some very important people and now you're here with nobody around. Who knows what can happen? Oh, I know exactly what can happen, I told the man. You do? Good, tell me. You two are going to let me go my merry way with Laratia and my niece, or Mr. Calhoun's dirty whites will be aired in the street. That's what's going to happen. Oh, is that a fact? Yeah, it is. I mean, what other, hap what other options do you have? I told him. The older gentleman had been looking down at his nails at the time. Then he stopped and looked over me at his looked at me over his glasses. Tony, Fat Tony slapped the shit out of me, and a ringing sound a, a ringing sounded off loud and clear. Then he punched me in the gut and used a sledgehammer he called fist to uppercut me so hard in the nose that it lifted me and the chair off of the floor and onto my back. I saw nothing but white for probably thirty seconds, and when I came to, the older man was standing over me. How you feeling now, kid? Options? Me? I said. Pretty good, actually. The old man smirked. I think he admired me for my for a split second, but when I looked at when I looked at Tony, who was hyper hyperventilating from throwing three punches, I knew I had some more damage and some more damage coming my way. I saw Fat Tony raise his fat fucking foot off the ground, and I closed my eyes. I closed my eyes and soon I felt my skull crack under his cold, wet boot. Then my organs shifted from the kick and every time the old man would ask me how I was, I just responded with the same answer. I couldn't tell you how long that beating lasted, but I can say that Fat Tony got a workout of a lifetime that night and I got the beating of one too. When I woke up after being concussed for probably the hundredth time that night, Fat Tony was sweating and gasping for breath on a nearby chair. My mouth, my mouth was filled with blood and I can feel that I'd lost at least three teeth. The older man was sitting too, reading a newspaper like he would in front of his breakfast nook on a quiet Sunday morning. When I coughed up yet another tooth and blood combination, the old man looked at me then closed his newspaper. You know, Bernard, he said, I admire you. I looked up through the one eye I could see out of to see the older man the older guy get up out of his chair. He walked over to me with grace and took his glasses off. When he stopped in front of me, I braced myself for yet another thrashing, but to my surprise, he took another approach. You know, robbing the Waldorf and everything that came with that was already pretty damn hard, but getting Dino to chase you or your brother rather, or your brother Leonard rather, to your house where you hid some of Mr. Calhoun's money which he thought was your mother's life insurance policy, was it? Yeah, I, yes, I nodded, yes. For him to start his drug ring, which you knew he would do because why? <sighs> he talked about it at the A's, I told him. To you? No, to his guys. And that information mattered to you, why? Well, it didn't, until it did, for my scam. <sighs> that damn Dino. And you knew by taking Calhoun's money, he would think, and you knew by taking Calhoun's money, we, the organization, would think it was him because where the hell else would Dino get his money? We'll get money like that. Where the hell else would Dino get money like that? And if Dino ever did figure it out, he would never let it be known to us that a nigger outsmarted him. Plus, again, 
he thought he killed you, right? Okay, so we take him out for insubordination and with you quote unquote being dead and Dino being gone, there would be nobody to chase. Mm, not bad. But hey, one question. How did you lure Dino into the bet in the first place? Fat Tony says Dino used to bust you up over $500 New England Patriots games. I framed a card game, I told him. Cards, he said? Yeah. I went to A's early one night and paid a dealer to set up the cards for me to lose a high stakes po uh, to lose a high stakes poker match. No. Yeah. And I played it like it didn't mean much afterwards and Dino saw the blood in the water like I planned. Ah, he knew or he thought you were still a degenerate and would want to get something for himself. Mm. But that was before you walled that was before you robbed the Waldorf, right? Where did the money come from for that? Well, Laracia used some of her boyfriend's tour money. Federico cleared out his savings and I used my rent. Wait, 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 wait. But you lost the pot on purpose, as you say. But if that, if, if, but if something went south at the Waldorf, what then? Oh, I lost the pot, but we didn't lose the game. How's that? Well, because of the players. What? What players? The dealer just set up the cards. He thought I was stupid too for that, but the players were set too. Well, one player anyway. The guy that I lost to didn't fall on dumb luck. The guy that I lost to was Federico. Ah, the Cuban. So even that was a win-win. Yep. The old man gave me an applause. See? What did I say? The old man said, looking at Fat, Fat Tony, who was still recovering from our one-sided sparring match. Genius. I told Corleone and Soprano in a different world, we could have worked with this guy. Now, I was lumped up, bleeding with half of my dental records scattered across the metal floors, but I'd be lying if I didn't say I was a bit proud of myself for what I managed to pull off after the old man's cheers. And the short time I had since I'd known about being fired at the Waldorf, I did pull off a pretty good scam, I guess. But I never was able to smell the roses because of all the people I had gotten involved. But what most people don't realize is that fear can be a good thing. It makes you sharp. It forces you to react in circumstances that maybe you wouldn't have in the first place. The day I got the call from Laracia and the mob, I looked up at Federico's kitchen calendar and realized it was three days before the anniversary of my death dream. I flew back into New York under just under two days before, and by the time I checked into the Grand Hotel, I had 24 hours to live. That delicious meal I had in my $5,000 a night suite was my last supper. And besides the shitty asparagus, it was absolutely marvelous. My last dish, my last ditch effort to fight against my fate was arguing with Federico to come back with me. But before I left, I made up with him and told him to send for his kids as soon as possible. Lola gave me the sweetest kiss ever put on a man's lips after Federico translated my dream to her and my send off was a pleasant one. I'd realized that Mr. Calhoun, the mafia, and I could never coexist. I just knew too much. Even if I handed them every penny of his back, every penny of his money back and the ledger in a box with a bow, they were going to kill me and everyone that knew of the ordeal. They would have to. What does the old saying say? 
The only good the only good witness is a dead witness. Yeah. It was the mixture of fear and acceptance that allowed me to see so clearly that nothing could surprise th th that sorry guys. It was the mixture of fear and acceptance that allowed me to see so clearly that nothing could surprise me when I, once I landed. Now why they sent fat Tony's now why they sent Tony's fat ass to come get me was beyond me. It's not as if he was inconspicuous hiding behind that Reader's Digest at the Grand Hotel lobby. That was a mistake on their part because Fat Tony was too emotional. Fat Tony couldn't wait to kill me. I, a stupid nigga, as he'd like to put it, outsmarted the organization he idolized since he was a kid and worse still, gotten his mentor, Dino, killed with relative ease. Shit, Fat Tony might've been the man who had to do it. The easiest way to whack a guy is to do it with someone they trust. Who doesn't trust their own protege? But while Fat Tony was fuming in that seat in, at the Grand, pretending to read, wanting to put a bullet in the back of my head, had he been paying attention, he would have potentially seen Mr. Calhoun's ledger and future demise in the hotel's outgoing mail ba basket heading to the New York Times, which I placed in plain sight when I checked in. I was living on hope with my return that I could at least save Laratia and Zania's life. But when they brought out their lifeless corpses to me during my torture in order to persuade me to tell them where the ledger was, while I was broken spiritually, I knew I had made the right decision. If they were smart, they would have leveraged them. They would have leveraged the girls for what they wanted beforehand, then killed us all afterwards. But Fat Tony wanted to get back at me so bad he killed both of them not too long after the call without the higher ups permission. Fat Tony would pay for that with his own life when the organization lost Mr. Calhoun as their biggest client to the New York State Correctional Facility. And when the New York Times published an article entitled Mafia, Mafia and the Teamsters Union, a love affair created in hell. After years in court, in a public scandal that unearthed certain nepotisms, racial injustices, not to mention sexual allegations that got that prick nephew of Mr. Calhoun's thrown into the cell next to him, Mr. Calhoun's Teamsters Union was shut down and then revamped under a new banner called the Universal Team Union, an organization that offered high-paying jobs with benefits, 401k plans, and pensions to hardworking people of all colors and backgrounds. A young Harvard MBA graduate turned out to be the man selected, selected as its new chief financial officer, a man who made the change from civil rights politics to business ethics in his senior year of college after he saw, you guessed it, the article about the article in the Times about a corrupt businessman who used city ordinance and the mafia to funnel money in and out the country. And ironic enough, the Harvard crowd was a black kid from the South. Chapter 14. Figuring what was bound to happen in New York, I did make another call to the city before I boarded my flight. A real and true confessional was happening with the one person who had been good to me my whole existence in New York. Mrs. Gailey and I sat on the phone for hours and I told her my life story. The amazingly good and the very, very ugly. We laughed about my scam artist days in Tennessee as a young pup in the game, and we cried about me running to New York after having my heart obliterated by both Talia and my brother. 
She even offered some sympathy and empathy to the man who tried to drink his problems away, gambled his rent money and his life dealing with Dino. The not so elaborate heist and everything. It's crazy how much you'll admit to your, about yourself to another person when you're going to die. But also Mrs. Gailey was an old hippie who had been around the block a few times herself, so she was cool with it. She, like Federico and Lola, begged me not to go back to New York and thought it was nuts to think a dream, especially one that had me dead at the end of it, should have been the cause to go. But after a while, she too realized that I had my mind made up and felt through my words something was bigger afoot. Something was bi something bigger was afoot. I thanked her for her gift and the kind words. I told her I loved her. Then I asked her to do me a final favor. My very last wish. Before I called Mrs. Gailey and after I got off the phone with Fat Tony, I called Talia. She was freaked out because she had walked five minutes down the street to the grocery store to grab eggs for breakfast. And when she returned, Zania was gone without a trace. I told her the truth about the whole ordeal, what my brother had done in effort to make up with me and how I was on the run. But I was going back to New York to get Zania. I told her I needed her to go home to Brazil and I would send Zania to her as soon as possible. She fought with me and asked too many questions I didn't have answers to at the time, but finally was able to, I was finally able to convince her. Now that wasn't my vision for my last conversation with the only woman I ever loved. So much was left unsaid. I never said I was sorry for leaving and I'm, and I'm not sure if she ever wanted to apologize for her part when it came to her and Lenny. I am sure when she did get the news that we were all dead, she cursed me to all hell, but I couldn't control that. I just needed her as far away from Mr. Calhoun and, and the Italian guys as possible. It must be hard to know. It must be hard to know you didn't get it right with someone you loved before they're gone. But as I was getting a beating for all my earthly sins in a warehouse somewhere in the meatpacking district, Fifi and Miss Gailey were taking care of my last will and testament. Amongst the blistering cold, a black limousine rode through the slush and stopped in Buffalo outside the, a shitty rundown Motel 8. The day I left for Cuba, I paid for a long-term stay and gave the employee an extra hundred dollars to not, to not disturb the room for cleaning until Martha Gailey came to visit me. In that room, under the bed, sat just over $3 million in cash, a $100,000 check, and a photocopy, of, and a photocopy version of every page of Mr. Calhoun's ledger. The copy was proof to Mrs. Gailey of everything I told her over the phone. With her being a businesswoman herself, I can only imagine that car ride home wasn't a boring one. The $3 million minus Mrs. Gailey's finder's fee, if she wanted to take it, was to be held in an escrow account and given to Talia and Laracia's family when they were ready to use it. I gave Miss Gailey Talia's contact information in Brazil and hoped for the best. The $100,000 check, although it wasn't mine to give, I asked Mrs. Gailey to consider giving it to Truman, our RoboCop coworker. He wasn't all that bad of a guy and I appreciated his professionalism at work. I wanted him to do good in life and in general, try to take things just a bit more easy. Lord knows he loved the doorman service and the people at the Waldorf seemed to like him just good enough. I can only, I can only wish, I can only, 
I can only imagine the look on his face when he opened his mailbox one day amongst all the overdue bills he, that he saw that check with all those zeros. Hey, maybe he can do with it. Maybe he can do with the money what I couldn't. Back in the warehouse, while my mind was at, at its sharpest, my body was giving out. I thought about playing in the woods with my brother and making love to Talia as a kid, as a youth. The different faces of the Waldorf over the years and my powwows with Mrs. Gailey in Central Park. I saw Federico arguing with Lodo over their bills before they were rich and New York cabbies fighting in the street. And it just all seemed worth it. The mobsters and Mr. Calhoun who had arrived to see my ending, the mobsters and Mr. and Mr. Calhoun who had arrived to see my ending just couldn't comprehend why I was smiling under all that blood and scar tissue. Shit, I wasn't really confident in myself, but it was a feeling inside of me of my life coming to its totality. I couldn't explain it. The guys in the room loaded their guns with all these mean grimaces and, and I was the one smiling from ear to ear. They all emptied their clips into me, but I didn't feel anything. My body dropped to the floor, but I can see it from a standing position. The, sh the, shot the shotgun holes in me were still smoking, just like the dream. And when I looked over at the meat locker clock next to the thermometer, the clock had just passed 12 midnight and it was exactly a year since my dream. Fate is a crazy thing, you know? And so are humans. We think we want to know what happens next, but if we did, it would just drive us crazy. Or even worse, we would never do anything that we didn't know we would that that we didn't know would work out in our favor. Fate has to take the reins. It has to take us pulling and screaming and fighting against it so the journey can exist. So we can actually live because without the journey of life, who cares about the destination anyway, right? Hindsight. And boom! That's it, guys. Hindsight. Man, that was one for the, for the ages, for me, anyway. I like the story. I like how it uh, progressed and everything that came about in it. It's so crazy. You don't really know how these things are going to... When you start that first letter or that first sentence that comes to you once you've done your little planning or your little, you know, um, outlining and stuff like that, you have no idea. I had no idea I was going to end like this. I didn't know if I was going to keep Bernard alive. I didn't know if I was going to get him to, you know, live in Thailand for the rest of his life and he got away with it. Or I didn't know Zunaya and, and, and the other people were going to die. That's a, uh, or Loratio was going to die. It's pretty tough. You know what I mean? But, you know, as in life, you know, when you do these things, you take these chances and sometimes it doesn't work out in the favor of your main character. So I didn't want everything to be cool. Like in Dive, we are lucky enough that um, Joni survived and, and she didn't commit suicide and stuff like that. And it kind of turned out happily, although we didn't know how her life was going to continue afterwards. In this situation, um, I didn't have it planned. I just, you know, I just continued to write and just let my mind take me where it goes. That's what writing does. So it's cool. I was able to express myself. And I'll go back and listen to these things over again and stuff and see how I'll go and see, you know, do my edits and thinking about um, how I want to take uh, stories on to the future. But I've just besides that, I just thank you for listening, man. I'm just a, a man trying to express himself and share his stories with the world. So thank you. I appreciate you. Love you. 
and uh that's it man so we'll continue on i'm probably going to take a hiatus as i des- decide on what kind of story i have next i do have other stories that i might be able to flush out into you know full-blown stories they're just thoughts right now and ideas and i'm going to be doing some other things business-wise and stuff but i'll be back as soon as possible man so thank you again for listening i hope you liked it i hope you loved it if you didn't i hope you listened and uh and you learned something from it man i hope you get something out of these stories i think as i continue to write i'll start to tell more of my own self within my characters and uh we'll just see how it goes man so i thank you i love you i appreciate you man you know how to get a hold of me at michael de on instagram and then um my email is m double z ack 199 at gmail.com so talk to you later peace love and hair grease out of here peace